0: I have an introduction and the introduction says do you have servants it's not like actually expecting hands to go up Um, it would be in our culture fairly unusual to have a live-in servant or a maid in sri lanka it would be fairly normal so i can ask the question do you have servants if you are hungry do you cook your own food or do you eat out with a chef and a waiter to serve you? Do you say, when you go to wherever you go, McDonald's, El Campo, Cafe Rouge, I would like some of your finest salmon, bring it to me. I'll pay, let's oh, be clear, I'm going to pay. if. You or your house or your clothes are dirty. Do you clean it all yourself? Or do you get a cleaner in to deal with the mess? And you say to the cleaner, excuse me, cleaner, I vomited over here the day before yesterday, but um, that's your problem now. And uh, uh, the children have painted all over the walls. That's your problem now. Of course, I'll pay, but you clean up the mess. Do you have a cleaner? On a journey, do you say, I'm going to Newcastle today, I need to get to Gatwick Airport, I'll just get out my finest walking shoes and walk up to Gatwick? Do you walk there, or do you get somebody to take you? Perhaps you get a taxi. Perhaps you say to the taxi driver, I'd like to go to Gatwick Airport this morning, make it snappy. Of course, I'll pay. Actually, most of us have people who serve us for certain purposes, under certain circumstances. And servants do hard work for their employer. Uh, Well, that's the plan anyway. Cooking, cleaning, taking, bringing. And God has servants to serve him and to do his work. And the bit of Isaiah that we're looking at this morning is about the servants of God. That's what we're going to think about this morning. Let me remind you context of the book of Isaiah. It's like a very large cheese and we tried to divide it up a bit. There's a little mouse trying to eat a large cheese. The end bit, verses 56 to six, uh, chapters 56 to 66, the anointed conqueror. The, the bit in the middle, 40 to four, uh, 55, the book of the servant. The bit at the beginning, the book of the king. So says Alex Matier, And we divided that into two pieces. Um, and we looked at those two pieces. And today we're going to look at that bit there. The servant, that's that bit. book of the servant, that's where we are. Number two, Yes. Now, very quickly, context, history, as David so helpfully reminded us, and he had a good map as well, Uh, Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom, timeline going down there, the Northern Kingdom was invaded by Assyria and wiped out, the Southern Kingdom in the end was invaded and wiped out by Babylon, but in the time when the prophet Isaiah was writing, uh, they were seeing the problems with Assyria and The whole thing about how they would react to that uh, is part of what the book is all about. Will they trust the Lord to fight for them or not? Here's the geography, and David had a nice map of that as well. Uh, We had uh, Jerusalem, God's headquarters. We have Egypt, which offers... uh, That's a place where they were rescued from slavery. Egypt is saying, if you stick with us, we'll help you against the threats of... Assyria, that one, and the threats of Babylon. Of course, Babylon only became a threat at a later point. So that's the history and the geography. Previously, we looked at, first part, the city of God and, its t- and the two futures. Do you Remember that God accused his people of serious crimes and uh, pointed out that that leads to destruction. He also told us about the city, uh, which was a, a, a corrupt city becoming the faithful city. You get that in chapter 2, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Zion being Jerusalem, and her king, the eternal city. We looked at that in the first section. Uh, and then we looked at the, uh, the idea of pregnancy and the people who will bring forth a child who will be king. And we have all those prophecies about the virgin will give birth, we'll call him Emmanuel. Uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. We looked at those in the first parts of Isaiah. We looked uh, the other time at the nations and the spread of the nations and their Creator. Assyria, the threat that was repulsed, and he's actually, Assyria is actually in the Lord's hands. Babylon and her gods who will appear in future to triumph over the Lord and his people. But he's actually going to be defeated by the Lord. Israel, the faithless city that will become faithful because the Lord will not abandon his people. And then we had that sandwiched between the specific of Ahaz, the king who refused to trust God and his son Hezekiah, who, when push came to shove, did trust the Lord and saw the Lord work in a mighty way. So, that was a very quick journey through Isaiah to bring us to the bit about the servant, which is what we're going to look at today. So, I'm just not going to try to do too much detail, but to introduce you to some of the servants of the Lord. The servants of the Lord... Have a twofold problem. the nations there's a nation, proud, idolatrous, making them uh, worshiping idols, pretending to be God, we will be the most high, but actually limited. They are not God, in fact. they're idols whom they worship. Are bits of tree. Second problem is Israel. Israel does not trust in God, is tempted to trust the plans of the politicians, making alliances, seeking security in deals instead of in the promises of God, disobedient, and even following the idols of the nations. Her God is not an idol. Her God is the creator of all things. And here is the issue. How can God bless his rubbish people? And how can God bless the nations? Is he interested in doing so? Apparently, yes. How can he bless the nations too? And that, the answer to this, lies in the service and the work done by the servants that we're going to look at this morning. So let's look first of all at, uh, at one uh, servant just as a, to get us going. This is in Isaiah chapter 20. Isaiah chapter 20. And it introduces us to the thought that Isaiah himself is a, is a little bit like the, the nation to which he ministers. That I'm not going to push that too hard, but let's look at this, these few verses just to get us going. Isaiah chapter 20, in the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and attacked it and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. He said to him, take off, take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going around stripped and barefoot. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared, to Israel's shame. And those who trusted in Cush and boasted in Egypt will be afraid and put to shame. And in that day, the people who live on this coast will say, see what has happened to those we relied on, those we fled to for help and deliverance from the king of Assyria. How then can we escape? So let's just, just pick out a few things on this of Isaiah, who is said to be... Hmm, what does it say, Isaiah, my servant? Thank you very much. Isaiah, my servant... So, this servant is under the word of the Lord, because the Lord speaks to him. Important thing about the servant, under the word of the Lord. Then it says, when the Lord spoke to him, he did so. So, he does the word of the Lord. He doesn't just hear it, he does it. And in this case, he goes around stripped and barefoot, like the, uh, like the slaves are going to be, or the captives, or the prisoners of war, who are going to be led uh, far away with bare bottoms and nothing on their feet. And Isaiah goes around looking like that. Uh, and uh, it is to appear in shame. And the word shame is there. Did I put the verse that it was in? I said verse 3. No. Um, end of verse 4 it says shame. And end of verse 5 it says Shame. And presumably, as Isaiah looked back on this, presumably later on when he was older, his kids would have said, Dad, did you really spend three years going around with everybody seeing your bottom? And he'd say, well, I did, actually, yes. It was rather I was put to shame for, those, uh, for, those, um, for that period of time. He appears in shame, and he's to be a sign to the nation. Verse 3, just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush. So he's a sign. People are supposed to look at him, notice something, learn something, be challenged about something by looking at this man, the servant of the Lord. (coughs) Excuse me, I'm a little bit croaky this morning for some reason. And it's meant to show the shame of the two nations or the dual nation in which the Israelites are invited to trust because they'll be put to shame and those who trust in them will be put to shame. It's interesting that vocabulary of shame, isn't it? It is a shameful thing if you go around... Do you ever have those horrible dreams where you wake up and think, I've gone to work in my pyjamas and I just feel completely ashamed of myself? And... um, Perhaps it's just me. Uh, (laughs) (coughs) <coughs> Wish I hadn't said that now, um, but here is Isaiah uh, bearing shame uh, for a reason. I won't push that any further. But there's one of God's servants, Isaiah. Let's look at a second person who's called his servant. This is in chapter thirty-seven, verse thirty-five. <coughs> I'm so sorry. Isaiah 37 verse 35 in which the promise comes to Hezekiah that God will defend his city and the verse says Isaiah 37 35 I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David my servant. So we learn from that that David the king was one of the servants of the Lord. Uh, So we'll give him a crown, and we'll remind ourselves that this, the idea of being the king, is that he is the anointed. Uh, In Hebrew, the Messiah. We use that in English, don't we? Messiah. Or if you put it into Greek, it would be the Christ. So David the anointed, he's the Messiah, he's the Christ. And he is also the servant. So let's anoint him with some oil as well. And uh, the job of the king is to rule and to bring justice. So I, I'm going to have to give you a Hebrew word, mishpat. It means something like, I think it means something like order, getting everything right with good decisions being made and uh, harmony established. And that's what the king is going to do. He's going to produce mishpat. That's what this servant does. And in this text, we learn that the king is linked to the city because it says, I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of, of David, my servant. So obviously, as the Lord looks on David, his servant, he thinks about the city and says, the city and David belong together. I will save it for the sake of my servant. So there's the city and there's the king I'm sorry, there's the people uh, that the king has as his people. This servant is also linked to the Lord because the Lord says, I will save this city for my sake and the sake of David, my servant. So there seems to be a, a, a parallel or a link between what God says of himself, his glory, his purposes, his sake, and the sake of David, his servants, so they seem to be linked together in some way. And so he serves God, because he's the servant of the Lord. And there is a commitment from God to him. So it isn't just that God says, you know, like we would say, uh, get me a cup of coffee, and then you'd never see that person again. I wouldn't expect to see the person again, um, necessarily but God says to David you're my servant but I'm committed to you i have a bond with you your city ah your city i will save so there's a commitment between the employer and the servant and because of the lord because of him the lord saves the city so there's David the king one of the servants of the lord and the king is the reason that the city is saved. Uh, we have the son of David, don't we? Do we know the son of David? Same relationship. Uh, for his sake, the Lord saves his people. Uh, and he, has, he is the builder of a great city whose architect is God Uh, a city with foundations that we're looking forward to. So there's a link here in this whole business of the servant David to Jesus himself, the great Saviour. Now then, let's think of another servant. And this is the servant Israel. So we need to go out of Isaiah to the book of Deuteronomy, right back in the beginnings of Israel. And this is what David was... uh, David Rigglesworth, I mean, rather than King David, was uh, referring to in the children's talk. And here is the text that talks about this. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. So there's my little map. Mediterranean, Egypt... Jerusalem. There's my map. And in uh, that particular place, God brings his servant, puts the servant, so I've done the servant as a person, in a particular geographical place. And it says here in Deuteronomy 4 verses 5 to 8, see I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, this is Moses speaking to the people, that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord, our God, is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great As to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws, I, Moses, am setting before you today. So that's uh, part of Israel's understanding of why she's put there and what her role is. She's under God's word, like Isaiah was. She's to obey the Lord's word. And she's to be the envy of the nations because God hears her prayers. She's to be the envy of the nations because of the way of life and the quality of the community under the word of God. Uh, and uh, s- we had some words here uh, in verse 8: What well, other nation is so great as to have righteous decrees and laws, this body of laws? So we had a word for righteous. We had a word for decrees, which I think is linked with the idea of wisdom. And. One of those words in there is the word mishpat again. So here is the servant Israel. It doesn't say servant, but I'm going to say that in a minute. And she is put there, if I may say, to be a light to the nations. So I put some little yellow light signs. Do they show? Yeah, sort of. So she's there to be a light to the nations. To the nations. The nations around are supposed to look on and say, wow, what a great God. What a wise God. What a wonderful God. Just like David said, we want some of that. That's what Israel is intended to be. Let's find out where she was, where she'd ended up by the time we get to Isaiah 42. Please will you come with me to Isaiah 42. Which was read to us. Oh, that, oh, this bit wasn't read. Uh, Isaiah 42 from verse 18. And this is now what is said about Israel. Isaiah 42 verse 18. Hear you, deaf, look you, blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one committed to me and blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things but have paid no attention. Your ears are open but you hear nothing. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious but this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. And it goes on to say in verse 24, uh, who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? But they would not follow his ways, they did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand it consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. Here is God's servant Israel, now described as deaf. Not listening. Can't hear. Described as Blind. What do you see? Can't see anything. Can you see what God's doing? No, can't see it at all. Impoverished, verse 22, plundered and looted. Instead of glory and splendor, they are in the gutter, impoverished. And they are imprisoned. They are trapped in pits and hidden away in prisons. Probably thinking of the Babylonian captivity. They're in a a, a detention center in Babylon, under lock and key in some dark, horrible place. That's where this servant has ended up, far away in Babylon. And why, verse 24? Because they were disobedient. They were under the the word of God, but wouldn't do the word of God. We would not follow his ways. We did not obey his law. And what did God do? He wrapped them in the flames of judgment, verse 25, It enveloped them in flames, and still they did not understand, still they did not take it to heart. It's a very bleak picture of what has happened to the nation that God took to be his servant, to be a light to the other nations, to be the envy of other nations, and here they are, deaf, blind, impoverished, imprisoned, disobedient, far off, headed for flames of judgment. And, ladies and gentlemen, this is a picture of the human condition. It's not simply meant for us as a historical description, although it is that. It is a prophetic description. And it is a description which completely suits the human condition. What are people like? What are we like if we're left to ourselves? Answer We are deaf. We cannot hear what God says to us. Unless there is a miracle, unless he opens our ears, we do not hear. Jesus experienced this in his ministry. He talked to thousands and thousands of people. And at the end, the number of people who heard was really very small. Deaf, blind, We cannot see what actually is obvious. We have problems seeing that God made everything, but He did. We have problems seeing the truth of what it says in the Bible, but it's true. We are impoverished. Human nature, human humanity, the human condition is not that we are rich in the things that matter we are poor, we are in the gutter with the spiritual things that matter, we are imprisoned. There is a slavery which grasps men and women, boys and girls, unless God does something about it, a slavery, which the New Testament says a slavery to sin. Just as really as those captives in Babylon were slaves, we too are slaves. We can't escape from sin. And we are far away. Spiritually, we are far away from God. Uh, Like the prodigal son who went off to a distant land to get away from his father, so we as a race, we uh, uh, as human beings, have emigrated far away from the holiness and righteousness and truth of God to a place of sin and selfishness and our own little world far away from God. We don't love God by nature. We don't want to do what he says unless it suits us for our own purposes. And the flames of judgment are as real for us as for them. It's a picture of the spiritual condition of men and women. It's a very bleak picture. It's a very stark picture. And I'm gonna ask you this morning whether you agree with that picture. Because this is the picture that God paints. This is the picture that Jesus paints of our need for him. And unless we're agreed on this point, then the rest of it doesn't make any sense because this is what he rescues us from. And if you don't think that's where you are, then you won't particularly want to be rescued. Deaf, blind, impoverished, far off, disobedient, headed for judgment. Let's look now at another servant. Let's go to the beginning of the chapter of chapter 42, where the Lord says, here is my servant. And here's... So is it the same servant as we've seen before, or yet another servant? Well, let's read it. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice, mishpat, to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice, meaning mishpat. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his word, in his law, the islands, meaning the continents, will put Their hope. Who is this servant? What does it say about him? It says that God delights in him. So God isn't looking at him as he looked at his deaf, blind servant. He's looking at him as the servant that he delights in. The Spirit of the Lord is on him. So he has a special link with the Lord. Uh, a special enabling power from the Lord. He has a a work to do. He will bring mishpat, justice, to the nations. Is that what it says? It does. It says, to the nations. That's a big agenda. He will be gentle and self-effacing, as we read. And it says of him in verse 6, I will keep you and make you a covenant for the people. So that's his own people for Israel. So for them, he is in himself the agreement, the place of making a, 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 a bond together. That's who he is, a covenant for the people Israel and a light for the Gentiles. That's this servant. So we've got the, the Jews a little, and the Gentiles. Both of them uh, have a, um, are the target, if you like, ...of the work of this servant. And it says somewhere... Let's just see. Did I put the reference? It's in verse 7. This servant will open the eyes that are blind. He will free captives from prison. He will remove people from the dungeon... ...those who sit in darkness. Isn't that brilliant? He is the very one who will deal with the problem of the servant that we were talking about a moment ago. And he does what Israel was supposed to do. He's the light to the Gentiles. He's the obedient servant. Who is he? Who is this mystery servant? He's not Israel. He's Israel's rescuer, but he's in the same mold as Israel. He was... He does what she was supposed to do. Isaiah 42, verse 18 and following. That's the blind, deaf, blind, imprisoned, faraway servant. That's the picture of the human condition. And God says, I will not let my people stay there. So I'm, I've zipped over to 43, verse verse. 14 where it says this is what the lord says your redeemer the holy one of israel for your sake i will send to babylon bring down as fugitives all the babylonians in the ships in which they took pride i the lord your i am the lord your holy one israel's creator your king he is the redeemer he is the redeemer He will not let his people stay there, but he'll bring them back. Verse 1 says, Fear not, I have redeemed you. That's what he says to his people. And that word redeem is such a powerful word. It says, You were a slave. You were in the gutter. You were in prison. You were miserable. But I come. I free you from slavery. I buy you out of slavery. I shatter the chains that bind you in your prison. I bring you from darkness into the light. I, I deliver you. This word "redeem" is such a powerful, rich, strong word. And the no wonder, the people who are redeemed shout for joy, as it were. And uh, just to take this theme a little bit further, in chapter 43, he says uh, in verse 19, I am doing a new thing. I am making a way in the desert. Uh, It springs up, don't you perceive it? I'm making streams in the wasteland. Uh, The wild animals honour me because I provide water in the desert and give streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people. My chosen, the people I've formed myself, that they may proclaim my praise. And he says, I'm I'm bringing you home. I'm bringing you home. It's all wonderful, good news. In verse 25, he says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Wow. Wow. Their sins, he says, that's completely forgotten. My sins, yes, what sins are you talking about? Completely forgotten what you're talking about. What was that sin? Your sins, I've completely wiped out. I will remember their sins no more. What a change as God redeems his failed servant. And we still ask, how does he do it? How does he do it? How can God make his failed, rebellious servant into his favored, obedient servant? And the answer is through that mystery servant that we looked at a moment ago who turns out to be the suffering servant. Please turn to Isaiah 53 where we find in this chapter, it actually begins at verse at 52, verse 13, See, my servant will act wisely. And rather than read the whole thing, because it's it's, it's not only wonderful, but also long, let's dip into verse 6, where it says, uh, end of the previous verse, by his wounds we are healed. And in verse 6 it says, we like sheep have gone astray. Yeah, that's right, that was us. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's right. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just see what we're saying? The, The wretched, failing servant, his wandering, his foolishness, his iniquity, the Lord has taken that and laid it on, the obedient servant, the gentle servant, to make him the suffering servant. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, by his wounds we are healed. So there's the, the good servant, beginning of Isaiah 42, and he becomes like the captive servant in the gutter because the Lord lays on him the iniquity of us all. Who would have thought that? Who would have thought that God would do that to bring into play this mysterious figure who does what Israel was supposed to do and then, as a reward for his obedience, as it were, gets slammed with all the sins and the guilt and the shame that wretched people incurred and deserve. And he bears that for. Then, who would have thought such a thing? What other God has invented a way of salvation like that? Is it not the most glorious thing that God should have a servant like this? And who is this servant? Who is this mysterious servant? In the New Testament, one of the letters of Jesus' own <laughs> disciples, one Peter, chapter two, verse 24. refers to Jesus. He refers to Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was born in Bethlehem, lived in the northern part of Israel, made friends with fishermen who fished around the Sea of Galilee, and when he was still a young man, walked down to Jerusalem with his disciples, was arrested by the Roman authorities given a very peculiar, unfair trial, and then nailed to a cross. This Jesus is whom he's referring to. He says about this Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then he says, he himself... For our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. Do you know where he quoted that from? It's a servant, isn't it? By his wounds we are healed. And he's saying, Jesus is that servant. Jesus is that servant. Jesus is the one of whom it was said, Behold my servant, my chosen one, in whom I delight. the spirit of the Lord abides on him. Uh, he won't cry out aloud. The bruised reed he won't break. That's Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds we are healed. That's who it is. That's who Jesus is. That's what he, that's what he did. He's the hope of Israel. The whole story of the Old Testament Focuses up to Jesus. The plight of the nations is solved in Jesus. And it isn't just, you see, it isn't just Israel who looks to Jesus as the Savior. He isn't just the Savior of Israel. If you're Swiss, he's the Savior of the Swiss people. There is no other. If you are German, he is the Savior of the German people. There is no other. If you are English, he is the Savior of the English people. There is no other. If you are African, the wonderful African continent, that's the only Savior to look to. Whatever nation, he is the Savior for you. The plight of the nations is solved in Jesus. If you like, he's the servant who cleans up the mess that we've made. He's like the waiter who serves us. He's like the cleaner who cleans up the mess we made. He's like the taxi driver who takes us home. And this amazing thing, that Jesus, who is actually simultaneously the son of David, so he's the great king and the great prophet, but this Jesus is to prepare to serve us. Like we would say, cappuccino please, glass of water and a deal the deal um, with the pastry as well, please. Yes, certainly. But Jesus is prepared, to, I'll do that. I know, what do you need? You need forgiveness, cleansing, new life. Yeah, I'll do that for you. He's prepared to serve us. He's prepared to clean us. There's some vomit in my life. There's some muck in my life. It's disgusting and horrible. Jesus says, I will clean that. I'll clean that. He's the taxi driver who will bring us home. I, I need to get to, I, I need to, I'm at Gatwick, I need to get home. I need to get home. Somebody take me. And it says, I'll take you. Take you all the way home. Take you all the way home. Just jump in. I'm prepared to do that. And we say, okay, well, we'll pay. And Jesus says, no, you won't. That's the thing, isn't it? I made the mess. Jesus, I'll pay you to clean that up. And Jesus says, no, you won't. Because you can't pay. You don't have what's necessary to pay. I pay, or it doesn't get done. I'll do the hard work, says Jesus. To clean you. To bring you home. To serve you what you need. And you know I pay the whole thing. I'll pay. And I'll pay in blood. Because that's what he did when he died on the cross. You know the Apostle Peter, when, he was, uh, when Jesus said... Um, he would wash him. Jesus says, no, 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 you don't need to do that. Oh, that's a bit humiliating. Have you ever been so ill that you needed people to wipe your bottom for you? Very humiliating. I haven't been as ill as that yet. Nobody, you'd say, no, I don't want to. You, you can't do that. I always do that for myself. But Jesus says, I've got to wipe you and you've got to let me do it. It's a humbling thing. I cleanse you, I pay, I do it, or it doesn't get done. Do you need the service of Jesus Christ? Is your life in such a mess that you say, I can't solve this myself, my eyes are open to that, I hear what's going on, I need what only Jesus can do. Is that you? Do you need his service? Do you need what only he can do and only what he did on the cross? Is that what you need That's nothing else will do? No one else can do it. It must be him and what he did on the cross. Is that where you're at this morning? And have you come to the point where you're humble enough to let him pay? To say to him, I know this is awful, but you're going to have to do this. Okay, I'll just let you do this, Lord. Are you at the point where you are asking him to do that? Perhaps you've been there many times, but perhaps this is the first time. Why not this moment say to Jesus, that's what I need. You're what I need. You must serve me or I die. And you must serve me with what you achieved when you died on the cross because nothing else will do. Take a moment to do that now and then we'll sing a song.